So welcome to this bonus episode of The District. This one's called The Gun. I'm Eugene Bingham. And I'm Paula Penfold. And we wanted to talk about something we've heard from Paul Jellick, who you remember that we met in episode four of The District. And remember his big dog, Stuart? Stuart, the horse. Yeah. So do you want to recap a little bit about what we learned about Paul and his recollection from when he was young, only around 12 years old? Yeah, so we probably need to understand all this to be able to get to the new bit. So there's a little bit of background that we need to cover first. So remember he was down in the Coromandel at a batch and he and some friends went and stole some guns from a remote batch. Remember that Mm -hmm. whole saga? Yeah. And then he um, ended up telling his mum about it and she gave him a a bit of a stern warning because... The discovery of guns is obviously a bit alarming, right? Yeah, and she had that whole reaction of, how did you guys get your hands on it? And he didn't want to tell his mum how they'd actually recovered them, but he alerted her to the guns. Um, and they ended up ended up in the hands of Rod Rasmussen. Well, this is the interesting part of the story, isn't it? Mm. Who owned the batch next door where the guns were supposedly found. Yeah, and he was that crucial crown witness from the case, the guy who kind of ties the axle to the Thomas farm, to to Arthur Allen Thomas's farm. So that whole, remember there was the whole dispute over what happened to those guns. So Rod Rasmussen had them at one point. Everyone agrees on that. Mm-hmm. And then the dispute is what, what happened to them. Whether or not he handed them into the police. Which is what he insists. Which is what he says, but there's no police record of that, correct? Yeah, that's right. We couldn't find anything. And the cop, Grant Coward, who we talked to, couldn't remember. There doesn't seem to be any record of those guns being handed in, although Rod does insist that he did. Mm. Paul insists that his parents checked with the police and they were told that they hadn't been handed in. So... The interesting twist in this is that at one point, Paul Jellick's parents were supposed to be called as witnesses. In fact, they did go along to the trial, didn't they? But yeah. they never gave evidence. Yeah, they apparently sat in the court waiting to be called as witnesses about this whole saga with the guns, but they were never actually called to the witness stand. And it kind of went quiet, didn't it? Which, you know, that aspect in itself was odd, right? Yeah. And so it obviously never left them, did it? The mm. parents, that is, or Paul Jellick, for that matter. Yeah, I remember he described sort of that haunting conversation with his mother where he says that his mum told him that the cops were bent mm. um, and he kind of stayed silent uh, for all those years. And so the review to end all reviews, led by Detective Superintendent Andy Lovelock, that came out in uh, 2014. So... Paul Jellick had that interview with um, the local police officer at the time, Grant Coward, and he gave his full version of events. But then what happened? Nothing. Yeah, Paul predicted that it wouldn't go anywhere, and that's exactly what happened. It didn't appear in the report. It There was no mention of it. And even when we got hold of that other report, that Appendix 1, remember mm-hmm. it wasn't in there Still either. Nothing. Yeah. So Paul Jellick's pissed off about that, understandably. Yeah. Because it seems, you know... Like, this is potentially really useful information to the inquiry, but it goes absolutely nowhere. Mm. So he ends up contacting Des Thomas. Mm. Who is has that reaction. I think he says something like, Jesus. Huh. You know, he'd never heard of that gun. Because um, what's he'd his... he never heard yeah, of that, that is, gun or that whole theory. Yeah, well, happened. this is the thing, isn't it? This is the crux of it. What What's Des Thomas's theory about what this all means? 
Yeah, so he's always been suspicious about the axle evidence. He insists that it didn't come from Arthur's farm, and he claims that the axle, stub axles were planted on Arthur's farm. And so then along comes Paul Jellick telling him about this connection between Rod Rasmussen and his parents and all that sort of carry on that Des had never heard of. And he comes up with a theory that the information that Paul Jellick's parents had come forward to the police about was then used as leverage, essentially blackmailing Rod Rasmussen. Mm -hmm. Which you put to Rod Rasmussen when we went to see him that day. Yeah, in the rain. Yeah. And he he denied it, said it was bullshit. Um, And he rubbished it all. So... It's kind of was all a bit strange, wasn't it? It all it's all somewhat confusing and you know, in terms of the leads that begin but go nowhere. But the really interesting thing is and we're getting to the new bit. Yeah. What happens next? So we remember when we went to see Paul and we showed him Desert insisted and we had that crazy trip up north to see Paul Jellick carrying this gun, the other gun, the one that had been found in Tony Clark's yep. dam. Because he's got this idea that maybe Paul Jellick would recognise it. Mm. And so he suggested that we take it up to Paul Jellick and suggested that we show him. And that kind of, yeah, so we did. So this was at a property within a couple of kilometres of the crew farm. And it was in a, a dam. And it had been, it was found barreled down. Yeah, like it had been pushed into the mud. That someone had concealed it, um, and there it lay until the pond was drained not long ago. A rifle like that, you're not going to throw into a pond, are you? No, you're not. Especially back in that day. No, that's a pretty flashed rifle for those yeah. days. Yeah. I honestly can't say I recognise it. Okay. To be absolutely honest. Yep. No, that's um, good. That's good. Okay, so that didn't go anywhere. He didn't recognise it. Was he adamant at the time? Do you reckon? Yeah, he's, he's adamant that he doesn't remember the gun. Well, he was adamant then, but since the district, the podcast, has been published, you've had a call from him. Yeah, in fact, I the Monday after it came out, I had a whole bunch of missed calls from Paul, and we've rung him back, and there's a bit of a development. So, Paul, you've been thinking about this gun that we showed you when we came up to see you. Yep. Yep. What? So this is the gun that was at the was found at the dam. It had been pushed down into Tony Clark's dam, and he found it. It had obviously been there for a few decades. And when we showed it to you, you sort of said, "Look, it doesn't look familiar, to be honest." But what's made you think again? Okay, I, I rem- after after you guys left and that, I, I've sort of thought about it, and I didn't want to say anything while you were there because I wasn't absolutely sure. And, yep. and with these things, you've got to be absolutely sure about something before you make a comment. And um, after thinking about it for a while, I remember when I was a kid looking at the gun when I saw it and thinking it's just like a toy gun that I had, which is all plastic. And okay. back then, back then, you as a kid, you could you could buy these Winchester things that were just plastic toys. And you know, back then, plastic was a new thing. It wasn't like we've got today, where, where everything's plastic. Back then, plastic was quite a quite a big thing. It was a new new thing. Yeah. So the, you, you're talking about the the when you're talking about this plastic being a new thing, and that you're talking about the gun that you remember as a kid. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Uh, that 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 was so it stuck out in your mind. You remembered this gun that you had as a kid. Yeah. The yeah, and and I, when I, when you actually showed me the gun, it. 
that was what stuck out in my mind, but I, I didn't want to comment on it because I wasn't 100% sure. Now, um, when you sit down and think about things and go through things in your mind and, and reflect back when things are quiet, you, you can recall things a bit better. And that gun was familiar in the fact that it, it was plastic. And that's what twigged the same thought that I had when I was a kid, that it was like a plastic toy gun that I had earlier on when I was a bit younger. And um, a real one looked like the toy one. Um, so once again, I'm not 100% positive on this because, I mean, I was 12 years old, but it certainly rang some bells for me, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you, so just to clear up, so you, this this toy gun that you're talking about, yep. that... That's obviously stuck in your mind because you it was a, it was a toy gun that you played with as a kid, and so when you you'd made an association between that and the gun that was stolen from the batch, yeah, and then and then when we showed you the gun that came from Tony Clark's dam, yeah, that has twigged that memory for you. You've yeah okay yeah. So you think that that, that that same memory was a, it was the same sort of memory I had when I was a kid that the real guns, because I mean as at twelve years old you don't really see real guns you know no uh, I knew I knew what a shotgun was because um, a, a farmer that I I used to go up and help had a shotgun so I knew what a shotgun looked like but it was the fact that this was plastic yeah um, that it it came home to me that hey you know that 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 the toy gun and a, and a real gun are so close to look at you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now that you've had time to think about it, I mean, we and let's be clear, we we had a conversation about this um, about a week or so ago, and you, you were kind of reluctant to go on the record, weren't you? Because you, you, you as you say, you, you don't want to say anything unless you, you know, you got your facts right. right. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And that's, yeah. that's, that's so let's not overreg it, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, when you. You've got to be careful what you say and how you go about it. Um, yeah. But it, you know, that that same thing kept coming back to me, and it was like, it's it's probably better I actually do say something than I don't say something because I mean, all these years have gone by where I haven't said something and and I've regretted not saying something. So, it's it is what it is, and that is that it does trigger a trigger a memory for me, and yeah. that it was that it was a, a, it was the plastic that stuck out in my mind because it was it wasn't like a real gun. Yeah, but it was yeah. but it was a real gun, you know. Yeah, I do. Uh, there's something there that's just just it's it's not right. It's not it's not right. What what it says to me is that you've you've got a reason to remember remember that gun. You've got a reason to think of that gun. It's not just you've you know we've walked out the door and you've randomly grabbed that memory from somewhere. There's sort of, there's an association there that would help help you remember or put two and two together. Yeah, yeah, okay. and I mean we are talking. You know, uh, what happened 48 years ago. It's a yeah. long time ago. Um, but, you know, uh, when when you're a kid and, and, and a major event happens like that, it, it burns itself into your brain. And then when you've got the the aftermath of, of being told by your parents never, ever speak a word of this to anybody because the cops are crooked and this, mm. this guy's been um, set up, um, and which he was. You know, there, there, was, there was, you know, the cartridges were... were um, Placed in the garden by the yeah, they were planted. Um, yeah, there was, there was the, the stub axles, and um, you know the, the, the Thomas was saying they weren't in their tip, and the cops were saying they were in their tip, and there's you know there's so many things, and and um, 
you know, uh, it was said that those guns that uh, we handed to Rasmussen were handed into the police, and and I still remember my parents saying that they were not handed into the police, and yeah. the police the police were not interested in what they had to say, and uh, told them to keep their mouth shut and never never speak a word of it, uh, yeah. because they, because they had their man. Well, Grant Coward told um, one of the stuff reporters, Amy Mars, that that there was no paperwork. Um, and when we asked the police about it, we didn't really get any straight answers about that gun. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of, you know, sort of, I guess the best way to put it is smelly stuff around around what happened to those guns. We must we must say that Rod, Rod Rasmussen was adamant when we spoke to him, but, you know, again, he's getting on. He's 86. Um, yeah, everybody is, and, yeah. um, you know, it's uh, the whole thing smells. Um, yeah. And it's not right. And I mean, even even right up to today, um, I was told my evidence was was credible evidence by Grant Coward, and it was, um, you know, in his opinion, um, I was telling the truth, and it and it rang true. He checked and and found out that what I was saying was was correct. I wasn't telling tallies. Yeah. And um, and it's it's pretty compelling kind of evidence, and yet they they chose not to put it in the report. Yeah, it was left out. Whereas other things were put in that that were kind of spurious. Yeah, and they said this report was a report to end all reports and anything of significance is going to be in the report. Any evidence is going to be in the report so they can put it to bed. Yeah. Why Why did they leave it out? Yeah. I told Grant Coward when he took my, my uh, statement, you're wasting your time, mate. It's a, it's, mm. There won't be a word of it that says. Mm. And then, so, so this, if we just get back to this gun, so yep. if... Say you are right. Say this gun that we showed you that came out of Tony Clark's dam is one of the ones that was stolen from that batch and that ended up in Rod Rasmussen's hands. What are we saying? Well, obviously they didn't make one rifle. They must have made hundreds of those rifles. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not conclusive evidence that, that that was the rifle that we gave to Rod Rasmussen. No. But for the same kind of rifle to end up, what is it, three kilometres or something from the cruise property? Yeah. Um, and it's the same same type of rifle that, that I believe was stolen and, and handed to Rod Rasmussen. Um, you know, I mean, you've, you've, you've just got to draw your own conclusions. I mean, obviously the police aren't going to start asking, asking questions and reopen the case because, I mean, it's just fraught with... Uh, Lies and hidden truths, and nobody wants to know um, who who did the murders and what it's really about. I mean, it's it's just such a dirty case, you know. Yeah. They they imprisoned the wrong man. Uh, yeah, as simple as that. And as I've said all the way through, whoever had the axle did the murder. Whoever had that axle. So if you can tell me who had that axle or access to that axle then that's the person that did the murder. The gun is one thing. The axle is the other. The gun shot the people. The axle weighted them down in the river. Yeah. You've got that lovely phrase about the the weapons in this case. Yeah, there are two weapons. Two weapons in this case. One is the rifle that shot them. The second weapon, which the murderer had, was the axle. If you can dig deep enough and find out who had that axle and where it came from, and or obviously the stub axles that matched the axle. Now, that is the, the other very, very conclusive thing about this, is 
the police said that the stub axles they found in the tip matched the axle that was around the bodies. Now, we're now also saying that those axles were planted in the tip, and that goes back to, you've just got to go back through the evidence, and he had people searching his tip. Uh, these, are, these are vintage people. They didn't yep. find anything like that. That's right. There were people who there were people who just to explain that in case anyone hasn't caught that. So there were people who were vintage car enthusiasts who went went through that tip, that farm tip, and and you. I mean, you've had farm tips. I mean, you know, and I, I said to you the other day, I've had family members who've got got farm tips, and they they become chocker with oh, well, we with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and if you had five five years of rubbish piled on yeah. top, there's oh, no I way you'd find you, a couple I, of stub axles. Yeah, I can tell you right now, after one year. Um, anything that goes on top of the pile now is, is well at the bottom of the pile within a year and that hole mm. is covered in and you've got another rubbish hole. And, yeah. and that's how farmers worked back then. So yeah. for the police to go to his property and jump off the bank and land on top of the stub axles. Wow. That is so... That's, that's, that's fantastic detective work, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's the same loaded, cop who was involved. Yeah, yeah, it's the same cop who was involved with the planting of the cartridge. Cartridge so, case. So yeah. come on, you know. Um, yeah, the, the the public might be a bit silly at times, but they're not that silly. Come on, give give, give us a break here. We're yeah. not that dumb. Yeah. Now, um, so where did the stub axles come from that that cop planted in the tip? Because mm. that's what happened. They were planted mm. in the tip. So track it back to where those stub axles come from that matched the axle that was around the bodies. Then you're going to start getting close to your murderer. Yeah. Okay. And this, and as for this gun that you've talked to us about today, you know, we obviously, in the podcast, we found out that it had been cut by the police in very sort of suspicious, or no, not suspicious, but just unexplained circumstances. Yeah. Um, so there are already questions about that gun, and yep. what you're saying to us today just sort of further raises questions around what the hell's going on. Oh well, I, I personally I believe that we can't trust the police. I'm sorry, um, and I've got police officers that are good friends of mine, and they're good, honest cops. I'm not saying that cops, all cops, are bad cops. What I'm saying is there are cops that do not want this to come to the surface for whatever reason, that's wrong. It leads me, once again, from 12 years old to, to, to 60 years old, to not trust the police. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I believe there has to be a completely independent inquiry done that is, doesn't involve the government or the police to have a look at this case, rip it wide open, and, and find out who killed the crews. That's quite a sensational development, isn't it? He's changed his mind. Yeah, he has. He's had to think about it, and he's got those reasons for thinking about it and going back on what he's said previously. What do you think it all means? Well, I mean, the tricky bit, of course, is that the gun can't be tested, right? Yeah. Because it was, it was cut, cut in two too. when it was handed into the police. So I don't know. Where does it go now? Well, it's a bit of a, it just is another thing that hangs out there in the wind in this crew case. Like they all, you know, there's so many leads that do. But this one's really intriguing because if it is the same gun, what the hell was it doing in that dam? How did it end up in that dam? Who put it in that dam? 
Here's the thing too that is such a consistent emerging theme, you know, while we were putting the podcast together, but also since, is that this vacuum of information, you know, the unanswered questions, the questions that the police won't answer of ours, the fact that there's so much missing from the review. You've mentioned from time to time the idea that you think that there needs to be an independent look at this. Does this change of mind from Paul Jellick make you think any further along those lines? Well, I think, like you say, it's another example of those things that just don't make sense and we don't have answers on. And I think we deserve answers on them and the Thomas family deserve answers on them. And Rochelle Crewe deserves answers on them as well. You know, why don't we know what's happened to these things? Why was that gun cut in two? And if Paul Jellick's evidence is right and there is this is the same gun, how did it end up in that dam? What can you know? What can we learn from it? Can I just put my cynical journalist hat on for a second? Do you though? <laughs> Is it possibly just convenience for Paul Jellick that he's, you know, seen how this is all shaping up, what it all might be pointing towards, and he's decided to change his mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can't rule that out. We don't know, but he does have those good reasons for saying that he's had time to think about it, and he. He, I had to talk him into going on the record with this because he didn't want to make a big fuss about right. it. Right, that's useful context. Yeah, he was because he's he is he's you know he's had a lot to think about. Uh, he's just sort of, but he, he's got those reasons for changing his mind and saying that it has stuck in his mind the the fact that it reminded him of a gun that he had as a toy as a kid, and that when he initially saw it, that's what he. That's what he initially made that connection with. But now he's had time to think about it. You know, I sent him the photos Mm -hmm. of the gun for him to have a good look at. Right, so it wasn't just kind of a spur-of-the-moment assessment. Yeah, and as much as he did have a good look at it out of the box when we took it up to him the first time, but now he's had a bit of time to think about it, to have a look at it, have a look at the photos, study those photos. And he's he's still not saying, I'm 100% certain this is the same gun. Mm. Because how could he? Because it's so many years ago. But I think it's interesting that he has had a change of heart, change of mind.